This episode is part of our series discussing the debate topics released for Debatable Open 2021. The motions can be found in the description along with timestamps for your convenience. Please enjoy. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Debatable with your host Nina and Kyle. I'm Kyle. I'm Nina. And today we're joined by Joey Manzano. Um, she'll be our next motion contributor in the series. Um, she contributed the science motion set. She was the best judge of the Philippines in PIDC 2018. She was part of the adjudicator core in uh, PIDC 2019. She was also again in the adjudication core in DC 2019. So welcome to the show. Hi! Oh my god, hi! Hi, Kyle and Nina! Hello! Thanks for inviting me to your debatable show. I'm so happy <laughs> Thanks for that being you guys here. are like branching out into like competitions now. This is so exciting. Yeah, we're also very excited about it. Um, and we asked you for the science set in particular because we yes. know not only is that a complex theme that a lot of debaters don't usually expect yeah. in tournaments, but it's also yeah. rather difficult. So what do yeah. you think is unique about science as a set? And what advice would you give debaters who are debating this for them to do it properly? I don't think there's like there's anything particularly unique about it as compared to like something like econ or IR, because all of those things require some basic knowledge of the topic. Um, and there are a lot of technicalities behind it. So I guess in many ways, it's more similar to a lot of the themes that we expect um, people to know about in debate. What I think people don't do as much is they don't gamify science motions as much. Um, so for example, I don't think people strategize as much in science debates and they just try to blurt out what they know about the topic instead of looking at the things that are crucial in every debate. Like, Look at stakeholders. Um, look at the goals of either of either sides. In say in an Asian parliamentary. So, I think if anything, people just need to know that a science motion still has to have two sides in a debate, and you have to know who your stakeholders are, what science as an institution wants, what it looks like. I think if anything, that's what people can improve on. Try to gamify it more instead of trying to just blurt out topics. All right. So thank you. We're going to jump straight into the motions because um, okay. I'm pretty sure a lot of people are curious about this set. So the first motion is about the information deficit model compared yes. to the contextual uh, model. Um, yeah. So the first question we have about this would be... Was there a current event or a particular context that inspired this motion? Um, I think it's it's one of the more recent um, publications that I was reading about. I think it's more of a, a response to how um, science communication has been over the last few years. I mean, we've had the Paris Agreement, but I mean, in the age of um, Trump, I mean, during the during the during his term. Um, it was very difficult to communicate science and for people to resonate with what's being communicated. So there's there was recently a publication that talked about why it failed or why it's failing. Because the truth is, the science community still hasn't really let go of the, the assumption that people just don't know enough. So I think it's really more of where we're going 
like on, on how movements have succeeded at present and on what the science community can learn about how the movements that have succeeded in the last few years can adopt. I think it's really more an in, inspired by, by those changes. Okay, thank you for that. So besides what's already stated in the info slide, what other differences exist with the IDM and contextual model? Would you say that one side inherently would have more or less information than the other? Definitely. I, I think there would be a greater subjectivity that opposition has to defend in a more contextual model. Or wait, what, what side I would say? Oh, sorry. In government side, they would have to defend a more subjective side because they would have to defend to some degree certain cultural aspects of societies. Um, they would obviously have to forego um, the idea of um, experts having a, having absolute say about what is good and bad in um, certain policy making. I, I would imagine in in government said that they would have to embrace greater diversity of um, educational backgrounds, personal backgrounds, um, in order to truly make the debate as fruitful as possible. Can you give a, some examples of what a contextual model would look yeah. like if applied? Yeah, so for example, if say um, there's a lot of indigenous communities within your area, I would imagine that that there would probably a lot more um, context about um, the meaning of your land in, in your history. So I think it, it's really trying to embrace certain historical aspects that may, may not necessarily coincide with scientific concepts, right? So science is very numerical, it is very graphical, and there's a lot of evidence that doesn't necessarily translate to um, a lifestyle. So the contextual model will really have to look at um, be, um, consumption behaviors in the sense of what people like, what people like to purchase. It's what people believe in. It's who they believe in. There's really a greater emphasis on, on how people live and the quality of life that people like to live versus the things they should know. So I think the approach would be different um, for either teams, depending on what you're supposed to be defending. Okay, great. That I think that those characterizations are something that both teams would have to agree with in order for the debate to happen. Yes. And I also think that that's like the main clash point in the debate, yeah. like what should be prioritized. So yes. given this, what do you think um, would be good arguments for either side to run? Yeah, okay. So obviously, debates are won by like, showing examples that are favorable for your side, but also like trying to tackle the examples of the other. But there needs to be some, again, gamifying here where you have to downplay the examples of the other side, right? So in government side, you have to emphasize, I guess, the anti-intellectual movement that rises from uh, populist discourse, you know, and the capitalist discourse. You can talk about how it's so easy for people to fund anti-science rhetoric because science in itself is quite um, a heartless, uh, a heartless entity. No one really resonates with science as they do with literature, as they do with music, um, as they do with sociology or anthropology. So I would argue that um, the information deficit model um, is outdated because it presumes that um, people are just don't know enough 
instead of people not subscribing to the idea, right? So government has to emphasize the barriers that uh, deter people from wanting to subscribe despite having access to information. Okay, so the, the issue there is subscription than it is accessibility. So that is what mm. they need to harp on, right? So yeah. I think the easiest examples that government can run are like talking about Trump. So like in America, why is there so much anti-environment rhetoric? And, and I think the easiest way to say that, the easiest way to argue that is, is that despite them having a lot of access to, inter, you know, to online information, it's that there are structural bars being placed put by um, political and um, entities, people that, um, that they revere. So um, those are things that people can talk about, that, uh, that government can talk about, on why scientists may not necessarily be the most equipped to handle, uh, to handle, that, um, to handle those barriers. So for opposition side, I think the, the, the thing that they would really have to harp on is the, the dangers of subjectivity in a, in, a, in a discussion at this age. So they really have to harp on that it's 2020, that people do have access to online information, um, and that if we start uh, like backtracking from this information deficit model, which I would argue has still largely worked in, um, in educating the youth, um, that it might increase the chances of the idea that environmental protection is something that we can forego if a certain lifestyle is inherently incompatible to it, right? So someone can simply say, this is un-American of us to not, mm-hmm. uh, to not consume as much or to not believe in industries and innovation because that's the easiest way to brand it, right? Uh, that um, mm-hmm. capitalism constantly innovates at the expense of the environment. So, you know, that, that's the dangers of sometimes of a contextual model is that it may um, inadvertently encourage people to be lax about the, about the seriousness or the gravity of climate issues. Mm. So speaking of being lax and stuff, we're going to move now to the second motion, which uh-huh. is about the use of human challenge trials yeah. or uh, HCTs. Um, yeah. So the first question we have about that second motion would be like how would that look like or how would that expedite the vaccine development process and how much does it expedite exactly okay so the the thing here is human challenge trials is an existing model to try and develop certain drugs so what it does is so there's different phases in um vaccine trial uh, uh sorry in drug development and vaccine development um and one of the phases there is for people to be exposed naturally to the virus. So that can take about 10 years um, for, certain, for that phase to, to happen organically. So what they would do is that they would have a cohort and they would infect uh, a certain portion with the virus, a certain with placebo. Um, and then they would just let them go free. And then they would up and then for a couple of years, hopefully they would acquire uh, an infection or they be immune with it. They will ask them to return and see how many of those people get infected. So you can imagine um, the length that it would take in order for vaccine development to work, right? Uh, Sorry, vaccine development to happen. Um, The human challenge trials, what it essentially does is it bypasses the entire natural infection. It says, how many people of you are willing to get infected? 
And then it says, come on, okay, we'll infect, uh, we'll infect you naturally when, if you already have a vaccine and a placebo, right? So a similar setup, it's just, it's hastening things up. From 10 years, it can go to as quickly as within like a year or 10 months. So there's really significant difference with human challenge trials. I guess the heart of the debate here is that there is no um, one effective treatment, rescue treatment for people who have been infected by COVID. So there is risk for, so there's an ethical issue here where someone can die um, um, by acquiring COVID, even if they are healthy, right? So that, that's kind of like the scary thing about human challenge trials. It's a big thing in the scientific community now because there's been a lot of Nobel laureates who've supported the use of um, the human challenge trials, but a lot of um, ethical, um, a lot of, uh, I guess, people outside of the scientific community have expressed their concerns to it, especially people who are not within the fields of vaccine development or drug development, like humanitarian organizations and stuff like those. I, I can see why, because yeah. um, even in the info site, it says that it's um, intentionally introducing an infectious yeah. disease. And I, I have read some papers where it talks about like some other historical examples of yes. human challenge studies, um, which by today's standards would be completely unethical. So yes. my next question is, what would a modern human challenge study or human challenge trial even look like? Yeah. And um, would government side be able to provide some sort of like policy or safeguards um, to better characterize it or to shield themselves from like accusations of not being ethical? Yeah. So definitely. So what they can do is to talk about how they're going to decide on who's going to participate in the study, right? So I think what government has to be able to accept is there is no effective rescue treatment. I think that's why I tried to put it explicitly in the info slide that there is no um, effective rescue treatment to date. So what they can do instead in government side is to defend the idea that what they're going to choose as, mem as participants in the cohort are people who may de develop the severe symptoms. So people who already are healthy, possibly young. Um, so people who are generally healthy. So they're, they're going to try um, the, the, I guess, how, how would you describe it? A population that will develop the least risk, uh, the least complications as possible. So that is what they can defend. Um, I, think they, I think government can defend the idea that um, there are some treatments to help alleviate the symptoms. That is fine. But I think they have to be able to accept that in the worst case scenario, someone can die from this. Yeah. So we already see some clashes there. So obviously yes. there's the clash in ethics. There's also yes. the clash in effectivity. Would you also imagine other forms of clashes in this debate? Um, yes, definitely. I think you can talk about vaccine um, subscription to science funding and vaccine development you know this is what i mean by gamifying everything um what i and that is and that's true if i'm being completely honest i think there was a time that people would look at like science motions and even like gender motions and people wanting to immediately go to um, and go to talk about things that they know, but not look at the entire debate and not gamify it and not, you know, talk about things that may be beneficial in their favor. 
I think sometimes people are so scared about a certain topic that they just blurt out something thinking that that would be the most strategic instead of actually debating. So for example, you can talk about how there's already a lot of um, anti-intellectual movements rising from um, from the failure of handling COVID. Um, the WHO, for example, there was a lot of scrutiny about um, how the WHO handled the first part of this pandemic. And a lot of people are blaming the WHO for why this pandemic blew up to this proportion. And people people's complaints are, are you know, I, I understand why people have those complaints. I don't completely agree with it, but I see why there's an anti-intellectual movement rising. Um, what I would say is, is that when you talk about human challenge trials and say someone dies, right? Um, or someone gets a, a complication, the media and how they present science, it's just awful. They don't know how to communicate risks properly because that is not the nature of journalism. You know, it, it is not the nature of journalism to provide boring news because if not, then it wouldn't be in the news. So, so part of journalism and the difficulty of like communicating science that it will always slightly be more explosive than we would want. So you can talk about how if someone dies, that um, that's difficult for funding, and and that can trickle down to um, to human challenge trials that are actually safer to other you know to other diseases, the ones that um, are that that actually need um, more rapid vaccine development, but can be done safely. So, you know, those kinds of things that I think people think about in econ motions or in IR motions, like those strategies, people can do right, people can do here. The good thing is that if you do like things like funding, it expands your stakeholders. So it, ext it extends it to other vulnerable actors, right? So, so yeah, um, something interesting that I don't think people see a lot of potential. Uh, people don't um, argue as much when I judge rounds that are science <laughs> Um, I think that's great. Um, there are already a lot of arguments that you did talk about for this motion. Yeah. Um, was wondering um, what other arguments can govern up raise? So like even the more intuitive yes, um, yes. arguments, what else? Okay. Um, so what I would say is um, I, uh, I, how I approach a science motion or a motion that generally um, is hard to, I guess, um, in a debate um, is I use characters that are easy to visualize. So I try to ask myself who the scientist is, what their incentives, who the people are, what are their incentives, who are the people that we're going to vaccinate, what are their incentives, who are the countries that are most stricken, badly hit by the virus, and then I look at their incentives. I think um, sometimes I worry less about what specifically to argue, and I look at more what you can argue about. Uh, in terms of the stakeholders that that uh, and points of clashes in the debate and and this is where I think people can list a couple of stakeholders and they can blow them up depending on what direction you want to go to. So I would say um, if you I guess if you want to run a, a more intuitive case, you begin with something very eth heavily ethical, right? And then um, you can talk about why people care about the ethics of it. Um, you can talk about how you know, why, why there's an ethical committee for every research done, and then you can proceed to, you can proceed to um, the, the, the morality of, um, of 
people in the developing world or people who are poor and why they're more likely to be the ones that become participants of the study because they will get money. Uh, you can talk about racial disparities um, and how, you know, and, and, and much like in the times of slavery, it's always the poor, the POCs that become the test subjects, but never the white people. You know, there's a lot of things. There's a lot of things you can run here where you can, where the problems of science in the past become a reflection of the present and possibly the future. So I I think what's interesting is with the two motions we've discussed so far, uh, ethics comes up a lot. And this is also true for the third motion. So the third motion is about pub peer. And um, I did some research on this uh, prior to recording. And I I know this issue was, it's a classic because it's also been there since 2015, or at least the articles I've been reading. So would you say that this debate is mostly about the anonymity aspect of it? Is it about the accountability in the scientific community? Yeah. Is it about peer reviews in general or a little bit of all of those things? A little bit of all of those things. You you hit the nail in the head. Is that the is that the is that the tamang phrase? Is it yeah. yes. is that so. head, <laughs> nail in the coffin? But what whatever the hell that is. Whatever. <laughs> but that you hit the mark. You hit the mark. Let's just say you hit the mark. Um it is it is all of those things. Um, there's a lot of question in the sciences whether anonymity is beneficial or whether um, transparency is the best way to provide constructive criticism. Um, and, and I think that's what I want this motion to really talk about, um, whether anonymity is good in the sciences. The thing is, there's been already a lot of debates about the value of anonymity in political discourse, in how society navigates different social issues uh, and the thing is I think anonymity is especially important as a, as a I guess a point of debate um, in the sciences some people feel like they don't have a voice to air out their concerns about certain scientific studies but some take the opportunity of anonymity to be unnecessarily crass about the veracity of certain scientific facts so that is really what this motion aims to tackle, to look at anonymity as an issue, but look at it at a different context. And hopefully that's what um, the debaters try and see this motion to be. So in debating this, what would you say are the fairest standards? Like when creating this motion, what did you have in mind when you are talking about what is good to the scientific community? Yeah, okay. So. If you're in government side, so I will talk about generally. See, the thing is, all of my there's a general theme for all of these motions, and it's that I really wanted all teams, whatever motion they choose, to have a topic about anti-intellectual discourse, uh, yeah. like the uh, the rise of anti-intellectual movement. That's what I really wanted everyone to talk about, regardless of what the motion is, and and I think that is because um that is what's most relevant to a lot of people and resonates to a lot of people, especially within the debating community. Um, so for government side, you can talk about how anonymity um, encourages exactly what um, I was saying earlier in the last two motions, the anti-intellectual discourse. That um, The issue here is often you can be too nitpicky that you, you might highlight something that is uh, 
not not necessarily cor uh, um, correct about the study, but there's almost the idea that it's malicious if there's something wrong about a study that I think isn't encouraged in, in, in a world where transparency is a premium. In anonymity, I think, and this is, I think, also the issue with things like WikiLeaks is that people assume that someone who comments about a study or someone who comments about a certain issue, that they're right or that what they're saying is true. Um, even if we don't know who the person is. And I think that's partly because we like to believe what we like to believe. We like to believe that scientists are heartless, self-interested intellectuals. We, we like to believe the drama that someone wants to advance in their field, but they're just horrible people. And that's the thing, right? That an anonymity encourages. It encourages drama. It encourages... Um, it encourages that cattiness that I don't think is always helpful when trying to correct a study. So yeah, um, for opposition, it's like more of recognizing the power asymmetry, right? So I would talk about um, why anonymity is particularly helpful. I talk about the dominance of certain um, Western institutions in the field of science and talk about why they have such a, a strong, why they have such a compelling, why there are such compelling forces in the field. And I'll talk about how anonymity tries to correct that power asymmetry. I think another thing that I'll talk about in opposition is that there's this going trend of people making science but not being able to replicate the study. So that um, so this is what we like to talk about in the sciences, where people always look at what's next, but never what has been done and whether it can work. So uh, that is also another question that I think people people in this debate can ask and, and, and it's never just, and I think this is a problem in debate or actually everyone generally, it's that people always think that innovation is the next step versus, um, versus trying to look at the replicability of a study, the replicability of something. Because you know, when you're trying to establish trends, maybe the next point isn't always the right point to look into, right? So I think if anything, what I, I really want people to learn from this motion is how to frame a science motion with the right questions. Yeah. Well, I'm curious about something regarding yeah. the peer because I, I wasn't able to really delve into it. Yeah. Is anyone able to make an account? Like even yes. if you don't have certification? Yes, yes, yes. Anyone, so anyone can really make an account. So that is one of the issues there, right? So that anyone can comment on anything. And to be... To be fair, in government side, they can use certain matter like Bob Beer has been instrumental in calling out a lot of um, uh, what they call this. Uh, what they call it? What they call it when someone does something unprofessional? Problematic. <laughs> uh, um, Unethical. Uh, problematic. Yeah, it's something something devious. They were able to mm. discover. They were they were able to discover some data tampering. And they were able to call it, and there was proper investigation, and yeah, so they were able to um, they were able to call out scientists who've been dabbling in Photoshop to 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 try to try and make their results as ideal as they can. Um, so in government in opposition, that is something that they would have to that they would have to I guess capitalize on, and and that but that there's a and I guess. 
this incentive for journals not to uh, admit corrections when they've mm-hmm. already published something, which is why um, a pub peer is so beneficial in being able to, um, I guess, check in the the peer review process as a whole. Yeah, so would you say that it's like, I don't know, a natural check and balance to the, the what do you call this? Like the need that scientists or different researchers feel that they, they just really want to get published and that's why they, they do a lot of things like um, P-hacking. P- P-hacking. <laughs> uh, ex- yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's it. Uh, it's, it's democratizing peer review. I think that's a, mm. that's a good way to, to present it. Okay, I think that's all the motions. Um, thank you so much for discussing them in depth with us and for the oh, benefit of our listeners. Um, yes. But before we go, we have like some final questions, mostly okay. like, what advice the best judge of the Philippines can give and what AGCOR can give, what perspectives and what like insights can you give for people who are um, intimidated by science motions? Um. Admittedly, I've always had um, a preference for certain motions. Admittedly. Um, mm. <laughs> um, but what I would say is you have to enter motions that you are uncomfortable with with a level of curiosity and, and try to be inquisitive. I think the reason why I didn't become as afraid with motions that I didn't necessarily resonate with as much was I started tackling things um, with the natural curiosity I had for science and for you know gender and, and motions that I preferred. Um, so again, try to make it fun. Look at who your stakeholders are. But if anything, try to temper your conclusion. The world isn't always going to explode as a natural conclusion <laughs> of, 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 of every argument in a science motion. You know, the world isn't going to end because there's one scientific fallacy. So I would say treat it delicately like you would treat um, economic facts or political facts. Um, try to temper your conclusions so that you so that you your information would resonate a bit more. You know, they would seem more reasonable. But lastly, it's like um, just look at uh, you don't really even have to look at um, don't even really have to look at um, the entire issue. Just try and and find historical debates that have tackled these because it's likely that these things have already been tackled before especially in the field of science a lot of debates have been recycled and there's nothing wrong with that but definitely people's perspectives and examples will change Hmm. okay um so even if we go beyond uh science motions and science as a theme what advice would you give debaters who are just starting out their debate journey because for debatable open most of the participants are actually novices. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, hi, novices. That's one thing I wanted to say. Hi. Okay. Uh, I think what is most important for me, and I think this is one thing that uh, I recognized um, early in my career when I was debating actively, and then kind of I kind of lost track of it in the middle, but then I kind of regained it again. Was have fun and settle your expectations. I know everyone is always keen in winning the trophy and winning every tournament, 
But the truth is, debate invites a lot of intelligent people and the, the, the community is rich with intelligent people. And sometimes there's just something, there's just some rounds that you will lose because someone just knows more than you do or someone just practiced um, on that motion and you weren't able to. So I think when those things become too overwhelming, just remember what your personal goals are. And for me, I remember, and this is what I still hold dearly, why when I look at my debating career, I hold it, uh, I have so much good memories about it, is that my personal goal was to be able to communicate myself with people, with my family better. And I think I've accomplished that. I think I was able to communicate my confidence, my my humanity, you know, and that is something that people won't be able to take away from you. Right? That those, those things don't trust the ability to think analytically and persuade someone when when you disagree with them. Uh, so yeah, just just knowing that debate isn't always about the awards, the the the, the people's reverence of you. It's it's really um, about you and your personal journey and your your journey to be a a member of the community. Wow. So ganon, so ganon. Just enjoy, enjoy. It's really fun. Yeah. That's so wholesome. Thank you yeah. so much for, again yeah. for agreeing to um, contribute motions to debate will open and for hang hanging out with us in yes. um, this episode. Um, that's it for this episode, actually. Yay. Um, thank yeah. you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.